Over the last several months, President Donald Trump has been having conversations with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. They've been talking about the possibility of denuclearizing North Korea. And so they've been calling each other back and forth, hey, we should meet up and have a discussion about the possibility of denuclearizing North Korea. So about three weeks ago, they decided a time and a place, let's, let's meet in a neutral place, we'll go to Vietnam. He'll leave North Korea, Trump will leave Washington, D.C., we'll meet in the middle, so to speak, in Vietnam, where it's neutral ground for both of us, we can talk about this significant issue that affects the entire world. So, President Trump got on Air Force One, flew 21 hours over to Vietnam. Uh, meanwhile, Kim Jong-un got on his armored train and went 2,800 miles from North Korea down south to Vietnam. It took him two and a half days to get there. Once they both got there, there was media from around the world that was there. The media had set up stages and trussing and lights and tripods and cameras. They spent millions of dollars to prepare for this historic meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Trump walks into the room. Kim Jong-un walks into the room. Everybody's on pins and needles. What's going to happen? What are they going to talk about? They shake hands. They sit down. They talk for a matter of minutes. They can't get along, so they both stand up, shake hands, and they go home. Meanwhile, all the media is like, what just happened? <laughs> We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this conversation. We've been waiting for this discussion. We've spent millions of dollars. There's hundreds of reporters from around the world for this moment. And it seems as though nothing was accomplished after all that preparation, all the investment, and all the waiting. We've been in this series called Take a Number for the last couple of weeks, and this whole series is all about how do we wait when we're sick and tired of waiting. Now, maybe this affects you in some way or another. Maybe you're waiting to be used by God in some sort of significant way. Maybe you went and you graduated from high school, and you're like, okay, now that I've graduated from high school, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go change the world. I'm going to be a difference maker. So you go to college. You get a degree. You study. Some of you study. Uh, you invested all this time and the resource to getting a college degree, but then you wind up getting in a job and a career, and you're not even using your degree that you thought you would use. According to the Washington Post, only 27% of college graduates actually use their college degree, which means 73% of people who get a college degree aren't using it in, in the real world, so to speak. That's a lot of people who, who thought they were going to be used by God in some sort of way. Maybe it's not education for you. Maybe you're like, I have these strengths that I believe God has given to me. I want to change the world. I want to make a legacy. I want to make this world better because I've been a part of it. So I want to do everything I can with the strengths God's given me, but you're waiting. And you're like, well, put me in, coach. I'm ready, God. But I feel like I'm not using my strengths. I'm not using the talents God's given to me. Why am I waiting? Why can't I use these things that God has entrusted to me? Maybe it's your passions. Maybe things that you love to do. And you're like, I, I would love to serve in this way. I'd love to give in this way. I'd love to do whatever it is that you have a passion for, but you feel like you're stuck. You feel like there's nowhere for you to serve, nothing for you to do. Maybe it's your education, your strengths, your abilities, your talents, whatever it may be. Oftentimes, we, we feel like we get stuck, and, and we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Now, how do we honor God during the wait? I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know if you're waiting for success. I don't know if you're waiting for something to change in your life. I don't know if you're waiting to be used by God. All I can do is encourage you with this. Your wait might lead to great. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write that down in your program. Your wait might lead to great. Perhaps God is preparing you while you're waiting. Perhaps he's getting you ready for whatever next chapter, whatever next stage he has for you. Your waiting now might be the preparation period that God has 
to lead you into what he has that is great. Here's what James 1.25 says. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. In other words, whoever looks at God's word and does it and lives it out. If you continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Don't lose trust in God. You might be waiting right now. You might be getting bitter and resentful and frustrated, but there's a chance that your wait might lead to great. So be diligent with what you have already. You've been entrusted with responsibility already. So don't neglect that. Take that seriously. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 16.10. He says, if you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. You might be hoping that God is, is allowing you during the wait that it's going to lead to great. There's bigger and better things perhaps that God has for you down the road. That might be the case. But friends, don't neglect whatever God has already entrusted to you. If you're responsible with little, you'll be given more responsibility. If you're not responsible with little, you will not be given more responsibility. So don't neglect whatever God has already entrusted to you right now, right today. So here's the question I have for you. Can you be trusted with what God has already given you today. You might be waiting. You might be waiting for whatever comes next, your next chapter, your next stage. Can you be trusted with what God has already entrusted you with? There's a story in the Bible about a guy named Joseph. This story is found in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to pull out your Bible, pull out your YouVersion app. You can follow along. You can follow along on the screens as well. Genesis chapter 37. That's where we have uh, Joseph, this guy who's introduced to us. Starting in verse 2, Genesis 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Now, if you dig into the story a little bit more, you find out that Joseph has 11 brothers. He's one of 12 different brothers. He's one of the youngest brothers. Theologians also believe that he probably has about two sisters as well. So there's about 14 people in this family. He probably needs, like, you know, those Sprinter Mercedes vans to get around because they got so many people in this family. So they got 14 brothers and sisters. Joseph's one of the younger ones. Here, we find out in verse 3 a little bit more about the, the family dynamic. It says, now Israel loved Joseph. Now Israel is Joseph's dad. It's not the land of Israel. It's his, his father's name. So dad loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in an old age and he made an ornate robe for Joseph. When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, the brothers hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. Now isn't this how it oftentimes goes? If you have something that other people want. People aren't happy for you. They're angry at you. They're jealous. They're envious. They covet. They desire to have what you have. But remember, God even told the Israelites, it was one of the top 10 commandments he gave them, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. This is what God told the people. He said, he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. We shouldn't be jealous of other people. We should be grateful for other people. If they have something that we don't, we shouldn't be envious or jealous or covet what they have. We should be excited with them that they have whatever that they have. Just yesterday, my wife and kids and I, we went out with some friends and we went ATVing. I don't know if that's a word. Is that a verb? ATVing? Whatever. We got on ATVs and we rode around right behind the church over here. And we were driving all around the place. And, and as we're driving around, I have a picture of, of, I was in the back ATV taking a picture of the ATVs in front of me. And I'm having a blast. And at one point, we stop. And one of, one of my friends comes up to me and says, hey, do you want an ATV? Do you want one of these? And I'm like, 
yeah, you want to give me the keys? <laughs> you want to like gift it to me? Of course I want one. I'm having to like guard against my heart of having envy and jealousy because this is so much fun. I would do this all the time, but I, I, don't, I don't have the ability to afford one of these. And so I, I even joked around and said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at an ATV. <laughs> we, we, amen, yeah. <laughs> we had a blast, but, but we have to guard. We have to guard our hearts against being envious and being jealous of other people. Thankfully, in that situation, I got to participate. I was, I was really grateful. But oftentimes, when people have something that you don't, people get bitter and resentful. That person has what I want. And, and I'm not going to be thankful or grateful for them. I'm not going to be excited for them. I'm going to be angry and upset. I'm going to be bitter and resentful. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about envy. He says, love is patient, love is kind, and it does not envy. Here's what Solomon says about envy in Proverbs 14. He says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy destroys us from the inside out. We should not be people who are envious or jealous. We need to guard ourselves against that. That's why Paul said this to the Romans in Romans 12, 15. He says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. And, and the tragedy is that oftentimes we screw this up, don't we? Because we invert it. Instead of being happy with those who are happy, we weep when other people are happy because we're upset that I haven't been blessed in the same way that they have been. I don't have the same cool toys or I don't have the same things that they do. So, so we, are, we have a hard time when other people are happy. We need to be happy when people are happy. We need to weep with those who weep. Joseph's brothers, they were upset. Their younger brother got a cool ornate robe from dad. Dad loves this younger brother and rather than being happy for him in what he has and what they don't, they got bitter. And they got resentful. They began to have their hearts filled with hatred towards their younger brother. Well, things got a little bit worse because then God comes to Joseph in a dream one day. And in this dream, God speaks to Joseph. And then Joseph, when he wakes up from the dream, he goes to his brothers and he shares the dream with them. We continue on in our story, Genesis 37, verse 6. Joseph says this about his dream. He says, listen to this dream. He's talking to his brothers. Listen to this dream, he says. We were out in a field, and he's talking about we, like us brothers. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, and all of your bundles gathered around and bowed down low before mine. Verse 8, his brothers responded, So you think you're going to be our king, do you? You think you're going to reign over us? And at that point they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Now here's what's interesting. His brothers already were jealous. They were already envious. They were already coveting what he had. But this just added fuel to the fire. But the interesting thing is, what the brothers were upset at was not Joseph. The brothers got upset at what God said to Joseph. They were upset at what God said. They weren't mad at Joseph. They were upset at the messenger. But they were really upset at God's dream and God's vision for Joseph. Which is interesting because I feel like I can empathize with that. Because there's sometimes people, even within the context of this, con or this congregation, there's people that have written me hate mail before. Hey, dear Pastor Mac, move back to California. <laughs> and they drop that in the collection basket. Instead of putting a prayer request, praying for somebody else, they try to throw, throw hate my direction. And nine times out of ten, sometimes it's like, we don't like your shoes or whatever. But, but nine times out of ten, <laughs> now you're all wondering, do I like his shoes? <laughs> Nine times out of ten, the, the time that I get hate from people, it's not about anything about me. They don't like what I said about God's word. They don't like the scripture. It's not that they don't like me. They don't like the conviction that they're feeling knowing that they're not honoring God's word. It, let me tell you this. If you are a Christian in your family and people don't like you because you're a Christian, 
so be it. If, if you're a Christian in your workplace and people don't like you because of the ethics and the standards and the morals that you have, so be it. Don't be discouraged by that because haters are going to hate and people are going to do everything they can to take you out and take you down. And, and if you are standing for God, that's all, that, that's all that God could ask for you. We live for the audience of one, not to please people. Galatians 1.10 says this. Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, am I trying to win the approval of human beings? Or of God? Who, who am I living for? Am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You and I, we are not called to be people pleasers. We are called to live for the audience of one, and the audience of one is God. So be unashamed. If people don't like you because of God in you, that's okay. Because we're not called to impress them. We're called to honor and live our lives for the audience of one. So Joseph, his brothers don't like him. And, and they're now really mad because he shared, Joseph shared with them what God told him. So now they're fueled up even more. Now they're really upset. They're angry at their younger brother, Joseph. So now the other brothers are conspiring. They're like, you know what? Let's create a plot to murder our younger brother. Let's just kill him off. We hate him that much. Let's kill him. We continue on in verse 20. The brothers say, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. A cistern is like a, a water barrel. Let's throw him into a water barrel. And say that a ferocious animal came and devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, I read this story, and this story is thousands of years old. And I read this story, and when I read this, honestly, it's something that I can glaze through and, and I can read through really quickly. And this particular story hasn't rattled me emotionally up until about two or three months ago when I saw a news article about a man in Colorado who murdered his young bride and his two daughters. And the story is strikingly similar. He kills his wife, he kills his two daughters, and then he takes their bodies and he puts them in, in oil barrels, oil containers. And then he goes on live news. Perhaps you saw this in the news. He goes on live news making up a story about what happened maybe to his wife and his kids, and he's pleading, please come home. Maybe you've been kidnapped. Please come back, knowing full well he was the one that put their bodies in the barrels. What, what kind of sick, twisted individual does something like that? That guy's going to get prison for the rest of his life. Here, Joseph and his brothers, his brothers are conspiring. Hey, you know what? Let's kill our brother. Let's put him in a barrel. Let's make up a story about what happened to him. What kind of sick, twisted family member does something like that? One of the 12 takes a stand. His name's Reuben, one of the older brothers. Here's what Reuben says in verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from the hands of his brothers. He said, let's not take his life. Let's not shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue Joseph from his brothers and take him back to his father. Only one guy took a stand for what was right. Perhaps you're the only one maybe in your family that's willing to do what's right. Even if you stand alone, friends, keep standing. Maybe you're the only one in your company that's willing to do what's right. If you're the only one standing, keep standing. Maybe you're the only one in your school that's willing to take a stand for what is right. Even if you're the only one, continue to stand. Here's what Susie Kasem says. She says, stand up for what you believe in even if you stand alone. We need more, more people in this world, in our society, in our country, to take a stand even if they're the only one standing. So Reuben, one of the older brothers, he takes a stand. 
He takes a stand up and he says, let's not kill our brother. Let's just put him in the barrel. And then when my brothers get distracted, maybe then I'll, I'll take him out of the barrel and I'll save his life at another point. So he convinces his brothers. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the ornate robe that he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now Reuben had plans to rescue his younger brother. But Joseph didn't know that. Jo all Joseph knows is that his, his brothers, who are supposed to be a, a band of brothers, people who have his back, we are family. Not only did they reject him, not only did they hurt him, but they're attempting to murder him. That's what Joseph is thinking. He's probably in this barrel thinking, God, is this, is this really what you had for my life? Because you gave me this whole dream that my brothers are going to bow down before me. I assume that maybe, maybe that's like a position of authority or something. I don't know if I'm going to be a king. I don't know what you have for my life. I'm willing to wait for that. But, but really, I'm in a barrel about to die? Is this, is this what you had for me, God? Meanwhile, while he's in the barrel wondering what comes next for him, his brothers kick back and they start to have dinner with each other. I mean, there's no remorse. They're, they're eating while they're potentially killing their brother. They're cracking open their, I don't know, their hamburger helper or whatever they've got. Chipotle, Chick-fil-A. I mean, they're sitting there having a, a, a meal together. And mean, meanwhile, while they're having a meal and their Joseph brother, he's sitting in this barrel. Meanwhile, there's a caravan that comes by. And this caravan is a bunch of merchants. It's a Midianites. They're known for buying and selling things and, and having this trade that they do. And so all of a sudden, as the brothers are eating dinner, they're like, hey, there's these people that are like these merchants, these traveling merchants. They buy and sell stuff all the time. What if instead of killing our brother, what if we sell him instead? So they flag down the, the merchants and they're like, hey, we got this naked guy in this barrel. Do you want to buy him? And apparently the merchants wanted to buy this naked and afraid man. And so they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll buy him. We'll give you 20 shekels. And the brother said, deal. Sold their brother for 20 shekels. Do you know what 20 shekels equates to in, in our money today? $5.52. They sold their brother for less than it cost to buy a caramel macchiato at Starbucks. <laughs> what kind of sick, twisted people are in his family? They sell him off. And as, as they go off, the Midianites take this naked and afraid Joseph. They, they start taking their caravan. They go towards Egypt. Once they get to Egypt, they're like, what do we do with this naked guy? Like, what should we do with him? So they decided, let's sell him again. So they sold him to, to Pharaoh's palace. There's a guy named Potiphar who works in Pharaoh's palace. And they said, we're, we're going to sell you again. And, and so they sell him again. He's been bought and sold twice now. Now, again, when we go through the story, it's thousands of years old. Perhaps we're like, well, it doesn't really apply to, to modern day. You know, people don't buy and sell people anymore like they did. Here's what's crazy. Yeah, they do. Hundreds of thousands of people are bought and sold from the United States every single year. Hundreds of thousands. That means every day, thousands of people are being purchased like, like property. They're being bought and sold and traded like they're a commodity of some sort. And, and this happens underneath our noses. We don't oftentimes hear about it because it doesn't oftentimes make, make the news. But there is a human trafficking industry where hundreds of thousands of people are being bought and sold and traded from our borders within this country. This is not something that just happened thousands of years ago. It happens today. And the human trafficking industry is fueled by the sex slavery industry. The sex slavery industry is fueled by the pornography industry. The pornography in industry is fueled by the demand for pornography. 
I talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were launching my, my challenge, my 31-day challenge. There's a few of these books left in the bookstore if you're interested in, in, in ridding yourself of porn because people oftentimes say, oh, my porn, my habit doesn't hurt anybody. Wrong. It does hurt people because an addiction to porn is fueling the demand for pornography. Pornography is fueling the sex slavery industry. Sex slavery industry is fueling the human trafficking industry. And hundreds of thousands of people bought and sold like they are property. People are not property. Stop fueling this sickening industry. Joseph is bought not once, but twice. He's bought and sold two different times. And once he's bought and sold, now he's in, in the palace. He's now hanging out with Potiphar. But Potiphar sees potential in Joseph. Potiphar's like, I can put you, I bought you as my slave. I, I could put you to work. And so he starts working. And even though this isn't his dream, he does his best anyways, hoping that maybe God has something better for him. Joseph, even in, in this waiting phase, is thinking, maybe if I do a good job here, God will give me more opportunities there. So he does the best he possibly can. Potiphar recognizes this. He said, hey, mate, you're doing a great job. I, I really appreciate you. I value you. Well, meanwhile, so does Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife starts to recognize Joseph. And one day, Potiphar's wife comes up to Joseph and she's like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> and Joseph's like, no, 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 no. You are a married woman. I will not venture into that category. I, no, no, no. You are my boss's wife. I will have nothing to do with you. If, if I were to pursue a relationship with you, it would be like a bird going into a, into a trap. It would be like an ox being led to the slaughter. Uh-uh. I ain't going there. And she's like, oh, come on. Nobody's got to know. Nobody's got to know. We can like meet up together and have this like secret rendezvous, rendezvous together. Like we can have a relationship. Nobody has to find out about it. We can like brown chicken, brown cow. We can have this and it can work out. And Joseph's like, no. I want nothing to do with a relationship with you. One day, Joseph's in the palace alone. The only other person there is Potiphar's wife. She comes over and sees this as an opportunity. There's no witnesses around. There's nobody around. So she sees it as a chance to seduce him. Here's what happens. Chapter, uh, chapter 39, verse 12. Potiphar's wife, she goes and grabs him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he, he split. He left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. First streaker of the Bible. <laughs> he runs out buck naked. It says in scripture, it says, no temptation has seized you except for what is common to man. God remains faithful and provides a way out. Joseph sees this way out of the temptation. Every temptation we are faced with, there's always a way out. In Joseph's case, he's like, I got to split. Even if that means running through the streets of Egypt naked, I got to get out of here. So he gets out of there. Meanwhile, he left his cloak in Potiphar, Potiphar's wife's hands. And she's upset. He rejected me. He doesn't want to sleep with me. He doesn't want to have an affair with me. So she cries foul. She claims he tried to rape her. Here's what happens next, verse 13. When she saw, Potiphar's wife, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants and said, Look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make a sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She just made up this whole story. But of course, Potiphar, who's, who's he going to believe? His wife or his servant? Potiphar comes home. His wife says, your servant tried to rape me. And so Potiphar says, I have no choice, Joseph, but to throw you in jail. Joseph gets thrown into jail. And now he's sitting there in a jail cell, perhaps wondering, God, where are you at? Is that all you had for me? That little glimmer of hope that I had when I was in, in the, the palace? Is that, is that what you talked about when you gave me the dream? 
Is that as good as it gets? That glimmer, was that it? Because now I feel like I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then finally there's a glimmer of hope, and it's been snuffed out because I'm sitting in a jail cell, perhaps going to die here. One of my friends here in the church, I just heard recently that she, uh, she was hoping to move to California with her husband. Her husband's already moved. They're, they're trying to relocate to California, but they, they couldn't sell their house here. And so they listed their house over a year ago on the market, and it wasn't selling, wasn't selling. They were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for an offer. Nobody was offering, so the husband's in California while the wife is here, and they're separated. And finally, just a few days ago, finally there's a, a buyer Finally, somebody comes in and makes an offer on the home, and yay, praise God, finally, we're going to be able to sell the house. Our family can be reunited once again. But then the financing fell through. And once again, they're putting their house back on the market, listing it back on MLS. God, I was waiting and waiting and waiting, and there's a little glimmer of hope. And then it's snuffed out. God, are you there? What are you doing, God? I don't understand how to interpret what's going on. In this situation, Joseph's back in a jail cell. And he's like, God, what are you doing with me? Is my time up? Are you done with me? Have you, have you used me? Am I, am I exhausted from all the resources, all the things that you could have done? Is my life pretty much over? Perhaps there's some of you here this morning that are feeling something similar. Perhaps you've retired. Maybe you've been laid off. And you're like, God, are you, are you done with me? Is my career over and me being a blessing to other people? Is that over and done with? Is that just a previous part of my life? Is that the past chapter? Here's my encouragement for you. As long as you're still breathing, God ain't done with you yet. As long as you still have blood in your heart and blood in your veins and you are breathing, God ain't done with you yet. Joseph's sitting in this jail cell wondering, God, What do you got in store for me? I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. A glimmer of hope, and now I'm back in a jail cell. This is not what I envisioned, not what I dreamed that my my life would look like. While he's sitting in a jail cell, the Bible talks about how two more guys get thrown into the same jail cell. A cupbearer and a baker. Now, a cupbearer, he's the guy that he brings a cup to to the pharaoh. He brings a cup to the king. And his job is to take a sip of the wine or the juice or the water or whatever, sip it before he gives it to the king because if somebody's poisoned it, he would go down before the king goes down. So the cupbearer bears the cup to the king. That's his job. Well, he gets thrown into jail. The baker gets thrown into jail as well. Both of these guys, they spend the night in jail. They wake up the next morning after their first night in jail. They wake up and they're like, Joseph, I don't know what happened last night, but we had some cray-cray dreams last night. Because I don't know if we drank something funny. I don't know if we had some like weird green chili or what, but we had some weird dreams last night. Joseph, can you interpret our dreams? And Joseph's like, actually, yeah, I have the ability. God's given me the ability to interpret dreams. And so he says, cupbearer, what was your dream? So the cupbearer tells him his dream. He says, cupbearer. Joseph tells him, he said, I got good news for you. Your dream, what it means, the interpretation of it is that in three days, you're going to get out of jail. You're going to be restored to your position, cupbearer. You're going to be back with Pharaoh. You're going to be back with the king. And and you're going to be giving the cup back to him. And so Joseph says, please, oh please, when you're right there next to the king, when you have his ear, please tell the king, I've been wrongly imprisoned. Remember me when you're back by the king's side in three days. Will you please remember me? And the cupbearer is like, dude, I got you, man. If everything you're saying is true, and if three days from now I'm standing next to the king, I will tell him, you've been wrongly imprisoned. I will remember you. I got you. Don't worry about it. So Joseph's like encouraged. Okay, all right, cool. He's going to be with the king three days from now. His authority has the power to get me out of jail. Meanwhile, the baker hears this and he's like, well, that's cool. That's a good interpretation of the dream. What about my dream? So he tells, he tells Joseph his, his dream. 
And Joseph says, well, uh, bad news. I got, I got a bad interpretation for you. You're going to die in three days. So the baker's like, well, that wasn't the news that I was hoping for. Sure enough, three days later, the baker dies. But the cupbearer gets restored to his position. And he's right next to the king, giving the cup back to the king. But he forgets all about Joseph. And now Joseph, back to the waiting game. Waiting, 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 and waiting. And for years, he continues to wait, feeling as though everybody's forgotten me. Everybody's rejected me. Everybody's abandoned me. I don't know what you're doing, God. I don't get it. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream. In fact, he has two dreams in the same night. And as he has these two dreams, he wakes up the next morning and he gathers all his assistants and all his, his deputies, his management, all the people, the cupbearers there. And he says, guys, I had some crazy dreams last night. Do any of you know how to interpret dreams? Do any of you know how to tell me what these dreams mean? In fact, do you know anybody that does know how to interpret dreams? At which point the cupbearer was like, wait a minute. Yeah. I know a guy. I was in a jail cell. This dude named Joseph, he interprets dreams. I know somebody that can do that. So Pharaoh says, go get him. See if he's still alive. Cupbearer goes to jail, pulls him out. Joseph's still alive. He says, Pharaoh wants to meet you. He has some crazy dreams. He wants you to interpret them. So he gives him some fresh clothes, gives him a fresh shave. He shows up. Joseph, face to face with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, here's my dreams. Can you interpret them? So Joseph says, yeah, here's the interpretation of your dreams. For the next seven years, Pharaoh, the interpretation is that you're going to have plenty all of Egypt's going to have plenty. You're going to have a surplus of rain and, and grain and food. There's going to be so much stuff. You're going to have way more than what you need. But that's good because in the seven years after that, you're going to have a famine. Or you're going to not have any food. So in the seven years to come, you need to save. You need to stockpile. Because all the land around here, all the people in Egypt, all the countries around here aren't going to know that the famine's coming. So you, Pharaoh, you need to stockpile all this food. At which point Pharaoh says, you know what, Joseph? I like you. I like the way you work. I like how you're trying to help me in, in, in my leadership in Egypt. So tell you what, Joseph, I'm going to make you my right-hand man. You're my number two. You're second in charge of all of Egypt. All of a sudden, he goes from a jail cell to authority. Second in charge in all of Egypt. Meanwhile, as number two in charge... Joseph starts stockpiling food. He knows that he's got seven years to, to fill the silos of grain. And then sure enough, seven years after that, there's a seven-year drought. And as the drought kicks in, all the people throughout Egypt, they're like, we have no food. What are we going to do? Word gets out. The palace where Pharaoh is, they have a stockpile of food. So everybody throughout Egypt starts coming to the palace. Will you sell us your food? We'll sell you anything. We'll sell you family members. We'll sell you body parts. We'll sell you whatever you want because we're dying from no food. Meanwhile, word gets out to all the other nations neighboring countries as well, including the country where Joseph, where he came from, where his brothers still live, in the land of Canaan. His brothers hear this rumor, Egypt, Pharaoh's got food. We're starving to death. And so the, the other brothers, they decided to come and beg for food. We will pay for your food. We will buy food. They go to the palace. They knock on the door. The door opens up. Guess who's on the other side of the door? Joseph. They don't recognize He's their brother. He probably didn't anticipate finding Joseph in the palace. So in that moment, the brothers all bowed down before Joseph. And they said, please sell us some food. Please provide for us some food. At which point, it occurs to Joseph. In this moment, he is now living his dream. <laughs> his brothers are bowed down before him. This is exactly what, what God said in the dream. 
And all this comes full circle in this moment. Now, now they're coming and they're begging for food. They're bowing down before him. They don't even recognize him. What would you do if this was you? What would you do to your brothers? Would you have them killed and executed because of how they treated you? Would you say, you know, away from me, guys, because, because you, you tried to wrong me, you tried to mess with me, and so I'm going to let you go back home, and you're going to starve to death, and you're going to feel the pain that you have caused to me. What would you do in this circumstance if that was you? Would you bless them? Would you get revenge? Because revenge is best served cold. What would you do? Joseph reveals to his brothers who he is. He says, hey, Guys, do you know who I am? I'm sure they're, they're bowing down, they're looking up. Like, no, who are you? I'm the guy you put in the barrel to leave for dead. I'm the guy that you sold for $5.52. I'm the guy that, that you caused damage to. I got sold multiple times. I've been in prison because of false accusations that, that were led to because of what you did to me. I am your brother, Joseph. That's who I am. At which point all the brothers were immediately struck with fear. <laughs> What's he going to do to us? What's he going to say? What comes next? Is he going to kill us? Is he going to have us executed? What's going to happen next because of how we treated him? I don't know what you would do. Honestly, I don't know what I would do. But all we know is what Joseph did. Here's what he tells his brothers who are bowed down before him. Genesis chapter 50 verse 19. Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Verse 20, one of the most significant verses in the entire Old Testament. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to hurt me, to kill me, to sell me, to trade me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. Holy cow. Is that the grace that you would have shown in that situation? Is that what you would have said? Hey, you know what? I know what you did. I, you, you tried to hurt me. You tried to harm me. You tried to kill me. But hey, you know what? I got you. Not only will I take care of you, but I'll take care of your kids as well. That's incredibly gracious. And perhaps not how everybody in this room would react in that scenario. So, so how does somebody like Joseph make that decision to be gracious in that moment? Here's how. I don't, know, I don't know what you're waiting on in life. I don't know what scenario. I don't know what trial. I don't know what you're going through. But, but I do know this. You have two options. While you're waiting for whatever comes next, you can become bitter or you can become better. You pick. During this season, you could become bitter, angry, resentful, filled with hate, or you could become better. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 6.45. He says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Another translation says it this way. The overflow of the heart is what the mouth speaks. What are you putting into your heart? Better yet, what are you storing up in your heart? Are you storing bitterness against somebody else? You refuse to forgive them? Refuse to allow them to have grace? What are you storing up in your heart? What is, what is being put into your heart? What are you allowing in there? 
For the overflow of your heart is what your mouth speaks. The way and the reason that Joseph was able to be gracious is because he didn't store up bitterness in his heart. He chose, he chose to, to love his brothers, even though they weren't loving to him. How do you do that? How do you choose becoming better instead of bitter? We have faith and trust and hope. In Paul's words in Romans 8.28, he said this, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things. <laughs> Not that. God knows that in all things, God can make good out of it. Not some things, not a few things, not a couple of things. In all things. Your situation that is frustrating and causing you to be bitter and resentful or, in anger or angry or whatever. In all things, God can make good out of bad for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's the good news. We're all called according to God's purpose. You have been crafted. You've been designed. You've been knit together in your mother's womb to glorify, bring glory to God. We are all called according to God's purpose, which means no matter what your situation is right now, God can make good out of it. Perhaps your weight will lead to great. And sometimes it's hard to have faith and hope and trust in Romans 8.28 that all things can be made good by God. But we have to keep in mind the big picture we don't see. We don't see the same picture that God does. Here's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He said, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. In other words, you don't see the big picture that God does. You don't see how he can orchestrate this difficult season that you're in right now to lead to something that's great. He has the big picture. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's building in you. He knows the per perseverance, the character. He knows all the things that he's entrusting in you right now, but you don't see that. So we have to have hope and faith and trust in God that even though your scenario that you're living in right now, even though it may not be you living the dream, it can be down the road. So don't lose hope. Don't lose sight of the fact that God has not abandoned you, hasn't left you. He cares for you. He loves you. And let me encourage you with our, our theme verse as we leave here this morning. Galatians 6, 9 says this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Friends, don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Don't lose trust in God because your weight might lead to great. Do not give up. The proper time, you'll reap a harvest.